Good morning, family. Let's start with prayer. Um, I would like you guys to join me in prayer. And as I have often requested in the past, whenever I'm praying and I ask that you guys would pray too, I ask that you would pray uh, for me, that I would be listening to the Spirit. Um, I ask that you'd pray for yourselves, that you guys would have ears to hear, and that your hearts would be soft. So just join me as I enter into prayer. Father, I just thank you just for your word, that it's rich, that there's life, that you are the living word, that you've actually come to dwell with us, that you've given us new life. That you are a good, good Father. Father, I just ask that you would reveal to us today what it is to walk in your spirit, what it is to walk free from sin, what it is to walk as those who are united with Christ. And so, Father, I ask that you would give me the right words. I ask that you would let my words go out as seed, uh, that, that it would actually penetrate into the heart, but it wouldn't be um, the crafting of my language, but it would be your spirit that would be at work. That you would make hearts soft, that you would make ears open, that you would reveal through eyes to see the glories, the beauty, the majesty of who you are and who you have made us to be in you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> All right, so last week David taught, and one of the things that he said at the, towards the end was that we are those who are seated in heavenly places. And I think that that, that is amazing. And I think that sometimes we'll just hear these things and we'll just go, yeah, that's normal. Like, we're just seated in heavenly places. That's really cool. That's great. But like, do we remember that there's this, there's this God that, that like if somebody just enters in to his presence, that's rather terrifying. That, that there's this whole system of things that even the high priest, who was supposed to be the holiest one, w- w- was, was one who had a rope tied around his leg because he wasn't for sure that he was coming back out of the presence of the Lord, right? And now we are seated in heavenly places with him. That's, that's astounding. I, I think sometimes we just like, yep, we've heard this truth before. This is really cool. This is great. This is awesome. Woo, woo, woo. That's great. Uh, but like, what does that mean? How did we get there? How, does it, how did we get to the point that we could enter boldly into the presence of the Lord? Right? I mean, isn't that a question that we should be asking? Like that, 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 there's, that if, he's, if he's the one who created everything, if there's something about him that is so other than us, that there's something that we should, like there's a gravity to going, we're in his presence. We're not just in his presence. From what David said last week, we're actually sitting as a divine council with him. We're going back and forth and discussing things. We're those who are, who are giving our thoughts, hearing his thoughts, going back and forth and going, how do we change this world? And he's partnering with us. How did we get to the point that we can actually have those conversations? How do we get to the point that we can actually walk into his presence boldly, have a counsel with him, and know who we actually are? Does anybody else want to know that? Just me? Just me. Okay. Well, I'll just go, go sit down and check it out by myself. 
All right, so I think a good place to start would be to go look at that verse, that we are seated in heavenly places. So let's turn to Ephesians 2. So Ephesians 2, 6, it says, He has seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So if we want to know what's going on with that, we should probably read a little bit previously just to get a feel for what's going on. So Paul, uh, in Ephesians, uh, he's pretty much just like, from the way it looks, he has been utterly transformed. Do you remember the one who was, who, was, who was like persecuting the Christians? Now he realizes that there's something completely different. There's a whole different life that we actually get to enter into. There's something completely transformative of the work of grace. And he gets it and he's seen a revelation. And he's like, do you guys know? Do you guys know that this has actually changed? That you can actually enter into his presence? That you are actually made one with him? And so he starts and he's like, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise and to the glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And he just continues to go on and just like, do we, do we get all of these different things that he is seeing, that he's like, do you know the inheritance that you've been given? Do you know the glories of the riches of his grace? Have you seen these things? Have you tasted and seen? He then goes down in in verses 15 uh, through 23, he then goes on and prays for us, that that our eyes would be opened, that uh, that our hearts would be enlightened, that we might know the hope to which we have been called. He then goes on, uh, that he who worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, and uh, all rule and authority, and power and dominion, uh, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. And you, so right after he's like, this is the glorified Christ. This is amazing. This is the one who's been seated above all. He's been given all power, all dominion, all authority over everything in heaven and on earth. He then switches and he says, and you, so he's joining us with Christ. Do we see that? You see what's going on here? And you were dead in in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among uh, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and in the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even then, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated seated us with him in heavenly places. So he's going, hey, do you remember how you actually used to walk in the ways of the world? That you used to walk as those who were sinful? I've actually now made you blameless. I've now made you to actually walk into my presence because I've given you my nature. Yeah, I wouldn't respond there either. Hallelujah. Hallelujah! He has given us his nature. I think we're so used to hearing these things that we don't know what it means anymore. 
It hasn't, we've let the transformation stop. We've, we've let the, the work of grace just stay, stay fallow. There's something that has changed. That we now have a new nature. We are now holy, blameless, above reproach. And he has seated us in heavenly places. We tend to be those who, f- who study fallen man. And, and we, we look and we go back and we realize, hey, like, there's this thing called original sin. But I sometimes get confused why we study fallen man so much when the one that is our aim, the one that we've been united with, the one that we have been joined with, who is our brother, who is our heir, is not fallen. Why do I spend so much time studying a fallen man as opposed to the one who I'm actually becoming like? Why am I spending so much time looking at sin and sinful things as opposed to going, there's something about thinking on things that are right, pure, true, just, right? Does that make sense? We're spending an awful lot of time thinking about sinful things and, and fallenness as opposed to going, there is one who is actually true. There's one who is actually glorified. There's actually one who, who I have been united with who is completely other than regular humanity. And the work that he did was to bring us back to original glory, that we actually were originally created without sin, we had the capacity to sin, but we were created without sin. <laughs> and he saw, not just sinners, he, that's not just what he came for. He didn't go, ah, here's these sinners, I must come and save them. You don't pay a high price for something that's worthless. You pay a high price for something that you think is worth a lot. And he paid the highest price, his life, not just for sinners, but for sons and for daughters, for those who are of the king, for those who were originally heirs, for those who originally had royal blood. He paid a price to bring them back so that they could actually live and have life and rule in this creation again. And those sons and daughters are you and I. And that begins to transform how we live, or it should, right? All right, let's go to Romans 6 through 8, and we'll look at that. Kathy read that just a few minutes ago. All right, this, this is going to be a lot of reading, and I realize that, but uh, it's hard to uh, beat Paul's writing. It's really good. It's better than me talking. So uh, Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. He actually, that word by no means is actually supposed to be, that's illogical. That doesn't make a, any sense at all. That doesn't make any, any comprehension at all. That, why would we do that? Why would we continue in sin now that grace has come? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So just as we died with Christ, we are now raised with him because he has been raised and he's been given us, he has given us new life. And this is all in regard to sin. 
So oftentimes I feel like we think, oh man, that's sin. It's just all so sneaky. It sneaks up on us and we're just going to always just be really sinful people. But it's like, yeah, we might sin, but he's made us free from sin. There's something of, of the kingdom of God that has come and there's still something. We know that there's a fullness that will come one day, right? Like it has not fully come. But there's parts that I think sometimes when we, when we think about the kingdom of God, we're just like, yeah, it's always just going to be someday it will come and release uh, a freedom of life into our world. Although that's true that ultimately that will happen, right now the kingdom of God has come and has set you free from sin. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's something you have to do. That's a command. You must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Let not sin Therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for, right, for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but you are under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are under the law? Uh, but uh, we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. That's illogical. It doesn't make any sense at all. Do you not know that if you present your, yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to right, unrighteousness? Which leads to righteousness. So d- did you get, catch that part of slaves? So like you are a slave to whichever you obey. But you've already been set free. So to, to obey sin... To, to walk in that doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. Why would we want to be slaves to sin? It's whatever we obey, we become slaves to. So we obey God and we become slaves to righteousness. Does that make sense? But thanks be to God that you, were one, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart. Remember, we used to have stony hearts. Remember the Old Testament? Those who have hard hearts. But now we've been given soft, fleshy hearts, new hearts that can actually be transformed, that have, have life and can have life abundantly in it. So obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking human terms because of the natural limitations. For just as you once were presented, you, you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to the lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members to, as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, but... What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, 
but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right. So I'm going to skip the first section of, of seven. She read that earlier. It's all about uh, a, a wife being married. Uh, if, if the husband dies, she's no longer obligated to stay with him because he's dead. So that same thing with the law. So I'm going to skip down because this is the part that, that I think people uh, tend to, to, to get confused on. And it seems a bit tricky. And we're like, yeah, I, I feel like that's what I experienced in my life. Uh, but this is, this is Paul transitioning. So he's just gone, hey, you're free from sin. Does that mean you don't sin anymore? No. But you are free. You are no longer obligated to obey that. But then he's like, well, what was the whole point of the law then? And so that's what he's going to get into here in 7. He wants us to go, okay, well, was the, was the law just stupid? Was it just a waste? Was it just like a facade that was just n- of no point at all? And he's like, well, not exactly. Let me explain it to you. What shall we say then? What is the, what, uh, that, the, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So right now, Paul is taking a first-person approach going, this is what it's like to live under the law. Paul is no longer living under the law. He is now under grace. But he's, he's giving a first-person interpretation of, if I was somebody who lived under the law, this is what it would be like. This is what it's like to not have freedom in Christ. I would be stuck in sin. I would be working my own works trying to get myself out of this. I would have to obey all these laws to make this happen. But, but he's trying to give a first-person interpretation going, this is not you anymore. This is, this is what it would have been like to actually do this. So then uh, in verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, hold on. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Based on what we read in chapter 6, is that true of Paul? Is that true of any believer, that we are now sold under sin, that we are flesh? No. So, so Paul is not giving an interpretation of himself. He's going, this is what somebody who's living under the law, this is what it's like for them. They are sold under flesh, or they are flesh, they are sold under the law. Does that make sense? They're sold under sin. For I do not understand what I, my own actions. I, knew, I do not do what I want, but, the things I do, uh, but, the, but I do the very things I hate. So again, we like to use this and go, yep, I'm just like Paul. The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I do do. And it's no good. It's just, it's just the way it is. But Paul, like this example right here, I'll, I'll, I'll explain why you feel that sometimes in a little bit. Um, but this example is not one that you go to. That, this is not Paul going, yeah, as a believer, this is what you're allowed to go to. No, this is him saying, this is somebody who's living under the law. This is somebody who's living under flesh. And, and, and you, are, you are free from that. We tracking with all that? Does that all make sense so far? Okay. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that uh, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. Now, is that true of a believer? That nothing good dwells in you? No, the Holy Spirit. Exactly. So again, 
just going, this is not an example of a Christian. This is not a, an example of a believer. Paul is using a first-person analogy going, hey, this is what it's like to be living under the law. There's nothing good that dwells in you if you're trying to make the, your own works happen. Are we tracking with that? Does that all make sense? So, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Again, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Is that true of any believer, that you do not have the ability to carry it out? No, that is not true. We have the Spirit of God, the one that raises him from the dead. So again, Paul, again, I'm just trying to drive this home because people like to use this as, yep, I'm just a fleshly Christian. I just don't obey the things of the Spirit. But that is, Paul is going, this is not a believer. This is somebody who is under the law. Does that make sense? We cannot use this scripture to justify our sins. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Again, this is him giving a first-person analogy of what it's like to be somebody under the law. He's trying to do it with his mind, but with his flesh, he gives in to sin. This is not a believer. But, praise be to God, chapter 8 is there. There is therefore now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in those who walk according to the Spirit, not according to the law. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are of flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And in the Greek, it, 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 it changes a little bit, and it, this translation is, is, is not quite as, as, as helpful. Uh, you, however, are not in the flesh. In the Greek, it actually says, you, however, are not flesh. You are spirit. You've been given his spirit. The flesh, that which is, is, is dying, that which is, is, is mortal, that is dying. It is passing away. You are no longer flesh. You no longer are captive to sin. You can walk free by the spirit of God. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give, your, give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers... 
We are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, uh, but if, you, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Remember that? Sons of God, those who are in the divine council, those who are actually seated in heavenly places. So if you walk by the Spirit, you are sons of God. You can actually have that divine counsel with the Lord. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. All right, so I promised earlier that section in, in Romans 7 where it feels like we're like, yeah, but I sin. And it's not the things that I want to do, but it happens, right? I mean, we, we still feel like we have that struggle sometimes with that Romans 7 section. Is that right? Other people have the same thing? Okay, just making sure. All right, flip to Galatians 5. Uh, 5 verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So, but I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So, if we are sinning, that means that we are not walking by the, by the spirit, right? Okay, so whenever we experience this, and we're going, hey, I want to do this, but the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I do do, I, I, I don't want to do. Like, Paul's actually getting at that here. He's like, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. So we have this, this struggle within us, that, that the spirit of God has come in, has dwelt within us, has given us power over the flesh, but we still have a flesh, right? Like, we still are physically here. But his spirit has been put into us to raise that which is dead within us to life. But there's still this struggle within us of fighting the flesh. And so in my body, when I choose to follow the spirit, I do what I want to do. But I also do what I don't want to do because my flesh doesn't want me to follow the spirit. Okay? But when I follow the flesh, I do what I want to do because I follow the flesh and that feels good. But I also do what I don't want to do because I'm not following the spirit. That is the struggle that we feel. Does that make sense? So either way, we are doing what we want to do, but we are also doing what we don't want to do. So what we have to do is we have to continue to walk in the Spirit. And we have to continue to suppress the flesh. We have to continue to rise above. That is exactly the life that Jesus lived. He lived in a way that was like, he ex- like think for me for a second. All the sins that you experience... The, the things that we consider like, this is pleasurable, so this is why I do it. Because like, you know, like, 
sin has a payoff, right? Like, that's why we do it, is because, like, there's something pleasurable about, about sinning. That's why, why we do it. Like, we, if, if there wasn't something that we felt was good in the moment, we would never sin. But there's something that feels good in that moment, but it doesn't have a long-term payoff. In Jesus' life, he realized, I mean, it was more than just a realization. He was, like, he was the realization of actually going, all right, I know this more than any other person because I created humanity. Like, this pleasure that you experience, I know this pleasure more than you do. And yet I've said no. And I want you to walk in my spirit. I want you to walk in that way. I want you to say no to the flesh. I find this interesting. So that, that, that section that we just read, that was from, from Galatians 5. Galatians 3. Paul, Paul, when he writes to the Galatians, he's, he's not happy. He has planted this church, and they have changed from what he came. He came with a message of grace. He came with a message of freedom. And they have decided, you know what? I think I can do this by works. I think I just have to do really good things. And I can, I can be righteous in my own standings. And Paul is having none of it. We get to Galatians 3, and he's like, oh, foolish Galatians. I think that's a really nice translation. That's really friendly. I'm not sure that it was that friendly in the way that he wanted it to be. Who has bewitched you? It, it, was, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness? I think, I think that becomes the struggle then, is that we begin to go, all right, I'll walk by the Spirit. And we begin to change it into legalism. We begin to change, I can do this on my own. Like, I can walk in the Spirit. It's never going to be you walking in the Spirit. It's going to, like, the Spirit is actually going to be the one transforming and leading you. You're not going to go, Spirit, come with me. We're going to do this together. Does that make sense? We have to submit. We have to humbly hold back and go, all right, lead me, God. Teach me. Show me what it is to walk in this. If we go back... I don't have enough time to do all this. Uh, if we go back, uh, walking in the Spirit, the first basic step is having your mind transformed. Thinking on those things that are right. Setting your mind in heavenly places. On those things that are above. That's the first thing. Having our mind transformed so that we can have our life renewed and restored and, and actually begin to live out walking in the Spirit. But how are you set free from legalism to make sure that this doesn't happen? It's your belief in truth. It's not your belief in your experience. Like, we can go and, and say, well, you know, you can tell me that I'm free from sin, but my experience tells me that this is whatever. Your experience is not the truth. It might be the truth that you lived into for a moment, but it is not the truth of the reality of Jesus Christ. It's his light that shines through into the darkness to reveal the truth of who you are so that you actually begin to walk in the ways that he has called you to walk. 
Legalism is destroyed when what you see lines up with what he sees. So oftentimes we see ourselves as sinners. We look at ourselves and we know what we've done, right? Does anybody forget what they've done? I think we all know. Like we are all familiar with the sins that we have committed. And we look at ourselves from our lens and go, yeah, I'm pretty bad. I've sinned and they're pretty grotesque. And that's where we'll sit and and we'll say, that's the truth. That's the truth. I'm a sinner. But how does he see you? Clothed in robes of righteousness, united with his son, that his son covers you? That he has fully forgiven you? That's transformational. When we begin to look at ourselves as Christ looks at us, as as God the Father looks at us, suddenly our life begins to change because we begin to walk in newness of life. We begin to see ourselves in the same way that he sees us, not the way that we see ourselves. We stop lining ourselves up with our own experiences. We stop lining ourselves up with each other's experiences. We stop lining ourselves up going, I know what they did, and I'm not that bad. Who is the only example that we're lining ourselves up with? Jesus, exactly. So to line ourselves up with our own experiences, to line ourselves up with others' experiences, in Paul's words, that's illogical. That doesn't make any sense at all. Why would we do it? Because it makes us feel good for a second. Because we realize in and of ourselves, we can never measure up to the measure of Christ. I think God already knew that. That's why he sent his son for us, so that he could restore us to sons and daughters, so that he could put his spirit into us, that he could clothe us in righteousness, so that we could actually come into his presence with boldness and speak with him as a father. So that if we do sin, we don't just go, oh, poor, sorry me, I've done it again. We run back to him as a good and loving father. And we go, Father, I did it again. I'm so sorry. Transform me. Make me new. You've already begun making me new. Transform this in my life again. Reveal to me the truth of who you are in me. Show me how you see me and help me to walk in it. Me just believing that God sees me right produces produces holiness in my life without me even trying to be holy. Just me seeing how he sees me, just me believing that he sees me that way begins to actually transform me. Just believing that he sees me right. That begins to transform how I live and that I'm no longer a slave to sin. When we realize that grace actually equals transformation, we'll realize that there's something that we cannot just sit, sit stagnant with knowledge. We cannot just sit uh, with, with the realization that this has taken place. We'll begin to actually let grace transform us. That there's an etching tool called grace that actually begins to shape, reshape, and transform us into the image of his son.
Turn with me to 1 John. All right, 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So this is Paul's, uh, John's premise here that he is going to build on. And I think sometimes we just start reading the Bible and we're just like, yeah, great knowledge. Just like, I'm just going to read it line by line by line by line. And we forget that there's an intelligence that was actually involved, both by the spirit and by the human portion um, that actually has uh, arguments that they're making, that there's, there's actually a logic, and it's not just, all right, let me just read this, and yep, 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 just makes sense, but that, that there's oftentimes something that the writer is actually trying to get us to understand, and there's something that they are actually trying to argue, and we actually need to pay attention. What is his argument? What is he actually trying to get us to get? What is he trying to get us to understand? And so in First John, this is the message that we have heard from, the, from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So that is his premise. That is what the whole next part of this argument is, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Okay, so remember premise, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all, right? Light, dark, God, not God. So if we say, verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him, so we're saying we have fellowship with light, but we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So again, not a believer, right? But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, Jesus' son, uh, Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So again, but if we walk in the light, as he is in light, we do have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So he's made his premise that there is light and darkness. He said, if they say that I dwell in, in light, but they actually live in darkness, they don't dwell in light, they're, they're lying. And then he says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Next, next point of argument. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if we say, based on what was just said before, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from sin. So what does the blood of Jesus do? It cleanses us from sin. So if we're saying that we do not have sin, that we have no need of the blood, that we have no need of his cleansing sacrifice for us, then we are no longer walking in the light. That we are now, and the truth is not in us. So again, back to the dark. We are not walking in the light. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So again, those who are walking in the, in the light, those are those who confess their sins and he forgives us and brings us back into righteous standing. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So if we say, yeah, I, I don't even need, like, I've not sinned, I don't need the cleansing of the blood, then we make him a liar and his truth, his word is not in us. So again, he's going, John is going back and forth. He's like, his premise is, God is light, there is no darkness. Then he goes, this is what it looks like uh, to lie and to walk in darkness when you say you walk in the truth, but if you actually confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you. And he goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, trying to make us go, hey, do you see that there's this or there's this? But there's this or there's this. But there's this or there's this. And we'll use this and go, what are you saying, that we don't sin? Like, 
Paul sa- or John says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And we'll use that to identify ourselves with sin. But he's going, that's again, not who we are. That's those who walk in the darkness. And we know that because the very next verse in chapter two, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So he doesn't just tell you, you're always gonna sin. You're always gonna be a sinner. You're just gonna sin, 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 sin. But I'm writing this to you so that you don't sin. Does that make sense? I mean, it also doesn't make sense because that's what we use. We like, we say, well, don't tell me that you're not a sinner. Because John says, if you say that you have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. But we have to follow his argument. His argument of, of that one in particular is going, no, this is somebody who's not walking in alignment with God. And I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. All right, again, so, then what if we do sin? Because I think we all know what that's like to go, all right, great. You've told us we're free but I still know that I sin sometimes. Good news? John has an answer. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So, if you do sin. He doesn't say when you sin. Which is also interesting because he said when you fast... Not if you fast. How many of us fast regularly? We go, I think it's if I fast, right? And when I sin. But it's flipped. It's actually when you fast and if you sin. There's actually a tie between those two because when you fast, what are you doing? You're telling the flesh it's not in control. You're pushing the flesh down and saying, the spirit rules. The Spirit has life. I have bread that you don't know about. And so when we fast, we actually allow ourselves to be led by the Spirit so that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are actually transformed by the renewing of our minds to actually walk out in the Holy Spirit, the life that we've always been called to. But if we do sin, if we stop walking in the Spirit, Praise be to God, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins, not just our sins, but the whole sins of the entire world. All right, let's flip to Hebrews 10 real quick. Hebrews 10. First one. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifice that are continually offered year after year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? So there's all of these sacrifices that are given year after year after year, but they can't seem to make humanity perfect. And so the writer of Hebrews says, if there was that kind of a sacrifice, if there, if there was kind of a sacrifice that would actually have done and worked once for all, if that would have happened, all other sacrifices would have ceased. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sin. 
So we know that that's actually true now. Like, he's making an argument again. He's going, hey, there's all these sacrifices that have been made, but wouldn't it have been great if there would have been one sacrifice for all that would have cleansed us? If that would have been true, the worshipers, having been cleansed once for all, would no longer have consciousness of sin. Is this, I, I find this amazing. Like, I'm just trying to make sure that when, when we walk out these doors, that we realize we are free from sin. We are free from the effects of sin. We are free from the, the contamination of sin. We are free from the consciousness of sin. We are free from the obligation that we feel sometimes to sin, that we have been freed from sin. That the kingdom of God has come in that way. And we're not waiting someday, please come, Lord Jesus, may your kingdom come and set me free from sin. It happened. It's up to us to walk by the Spirit. That we no longer have a consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats. But if, there's a, if it's impossible for that kind of blood, maybe there's another kind of blood that would actually cleanse us. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. As it is written in, of me in the scroll of the book, when he said, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Once for all time. We are now free from sin. We are no longer bound by sin. We are no longer slaves of sin, but we can actually walk free into the light and the life that Jesus Christ has presented to us. <laughs> in 2 Corinthians 3, uh, Paul's writing, he says, Now if the ministry of death carved in the letters on stone came from such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, which was being brought to an end? Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? If there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Isn't that amazing? That the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of the law, that Moses comes off to present this law of condemnation and goes, hey, this is what the Lord has spoken, and he is glowing. How much more the spirit that raised Christ from the dead, living in you, transforming you to become what he has always called, the glorified Christ, that we will one day actually rise up into him, that we will grow up into all things who is Christ the head, that we will actually live the reality that he has called. Does this mean anything to you? <clears throat> to me, 
I never grew up hearing that I was actually free from sin. I was, I was, what I, what I, I don't remember exactly everything, but what, the, the way that I lived was I'm just going to be a sinner and I'm going to have to confess my sins all the time. It wasn't until 2017 that I actually heard somebody speak and say, you were, told, you were, you were called from the very beginning a son of the Most High God. You were given his spirit to walk above sin. You were freed from the captivity, from the slavery of sin. And suddenly, something in me changed. I was in Wisconsin, and there was uh, the, the school that I went to up there. It was, the, uh, it was a school leadership, and uh, they had some people, and they were prophesying. And one of them came to me and said, Stephen, you're coming into a season of freedom in your life. This summer is an important summer. <laughs> and it was. Because I knew exactly, I knew exactly what it was. When she spoke to me, she said, you're coming into a season of freedom. It was the only thing in my life that I wanted, to be free. I wanted to know what freedom was. From the age of 12, I was addicted to pornography. And I couldn't break it. Not a single time. I would always know the last time that I had looked. And I wanted freedom. I was sick and tired of it. I would fight, and I would fight, and I would fight, and I would always end up back in the same spot. I couldn't do it on my own. Not a single time. It wasn't until that I found out I was free from sin. I was no longer a slave to sin. What? That I could walk free. It was always this, this bondage that I would, I would try to walk away from, but it was holding me. It was, it was this slavery that I kept trying to get away from, but it would pull me back. Any of you guys know what that's like? Not necessarily with pornography, but, but with a sin in your life that you keep getting pulled back to. Do you know that you are now free? When that broke into my life, when I actually found out that I was free, when I actually began to live that actually out, my consciousness of sin just went away. My consciousness of the last time that I had looked disappeared. I couldn't remember. I was like, I don't know. Was it last week, two months ago, six months ago? I totally forgot. It was all gone. I was no longer trying not to sin. And this is a difference. I'm no longer trying not to sin. I'm now living righteously. I'm living as a son. There's a difference. We got to stop trying not to sin i got to stop doing this sin. I have to stop it. I have to stop it. I have to stop it. You can't stop it. It's the life of Christ in you that stops it by transforming who you are, changing you, changing your direction. That's called repentance. When you turn and go back towards Christ and you begin to walk in his way, 
No longer looking to the things of the past, but setting your eyes straight forward on who he is, the glory, the perfecter, the one who's transforming me and changing me into his son. Do we get the freedom that we have now? When we get that freedom, our lives begin to change. We actually get to, we begin to live differently. We begin not just being changed to, to not live in sin, but but our life is transformed to bring glory and worship of the highest praise to our king. If we want to have passion for Christ, if we want to live passionately, if we want to have our lives that are transformed to actually live in a way that's like, this actually is different. That the world can't look at me and somebody else and go, yep, I can't tell which is a Christian. If I want to live in a way that they can tell that there's a difference, it's from intimacy. It's from time with him. Passion for Jesus Christ comes from intimacy with him, that you actually know him, that you actually have been spending time with him, that you have actually taken your time away from the world and set that apart to hear his voice, to hear the things that he says about you, Shut the things in your mind. How many times do you say, I'm a failure, I'm a loser, I'm a liar? Once again, I sinned. Shut those things off. What does he say? You're righteous. You're holy. You're blameless. You're above reproach. He's hidden you with his son. He's covered you with his son. He's put his spirit into you that you might bear fruit of righteousness, that you are the planting of the Lord, oaks of righteousness to bear fruit into all creation. Life that's transformed is a life of grace. The life of grace becomes intimacy with God. Intimacy with God turns into passion and a change of how you actually live and actually are transformed in the daily living out of your life. <laughs> Let's look at Colossians 2 real quick. I think I'm almost done. Colossians 2, 13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands that he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Do you remember last week when we talked about the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, that he has transformed us so that we can actually take their place and sit in his presence and actually commune with him. This is a little bit after Paul earlier says in, in chapter 1, verse 21, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which he has proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." So you once were alien and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Do you remember 
the book of Exodus. They come out of what? Egypt, out of, out of slavery. Out of slavery. There's supposed to be a type and shadow going on here. We have been brought out of slavery to sin. We have been those who have been brought into a new land. Oftentimes I feel like there's a situation where, if we remember, they were brought out of slavery. They see all these miraculous things that take place. They come up to the promised land. Moses sends out some spies. They come back. Joshua and Caleb were like, so awesome. It's so awesome. They've got houses that are already built for us. They've got gardens that are planted. What are we going to do? Like, we're just going to harvest. They already did the weeding for us. The fruit is massive. It is incredible. Have you guys seen? Where's the rest of the, where are the, rest of the, the spies? Oh, they're over. What are they saying? Oh, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. They're, they're massive in there. I, I don't know what to do. I think we're going to, you know that God that saved us from, from, from slavery? The one that took us through the Red Sea? The one that was the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire? The one that fed us? The one that gave us water in the wilderness? I'm not sure he's going to come through again. I think his, his bag of tricks might have run out. Those spies. Which ones would you believe? Which ones do you often believe? The ones who say, the land is good. I've seen. I saw it. It's called freedom. We can walk in it. We can walk in it now, in this earth, the way it is currently. Can you imagine going into the promised land, having houses that are built, gardens that are already furnished for us, and you got this other guy over here who's like, you know what? I'm going to take the rubble of the wall. I'm going to start building this, this building over here. I'm just going to build it one block at a time. Oh, no, now I'm behind on planting. I've got to plant. I'm going to do it. Oh, no, I haven't finished my house yet. They already had the houses ready. God says, when you come into the new land and the houses are already built and the gardens are there, don't forget me. Don't forget the goodness that I've done. How silly would it be to go build your own house? How silly would it be to plant your own garden when they're already there? God says they're already there. You're going to come into a new land. Stop working so hard. Stop trying to do your own thing. Stop trying to make yourself righteous. Walk by the Spirit. The garden's planted. The house is built. Dwell in the house of the Lord. (laughs) Walk in His Spirit. All right, lastly, we're supposed to be talking about prayer, so I'm going to end with prayer. All right, uh, so uh, Ephesians 5. So I, I think this whole thing is about prayer. When we realize who we are and what we're, what we're transformed from, our prayers stop being, God, help, help save me from my sin. We can actually pray about serious things. We've, like, we need to stop praying about things that have already been accomplished. We don't need to pray, hey, 
Free me from this sin. No, he's freed you. All you have to do is walk in his spirit, see you for who you are, and live in that. And our prayers are going to be transformed into things that actually are things that haven't taken place yet. We need to begin to live into things that have taken place so that we can actually have a voice into that council to say, hey, this, this actually hasn't taken place yet. God, how are we going to work this one out? Because I'm holy and blameless and above reproach and I'm in your presence and I can speak with you face to face like a man. <laughs> All right, so uh, end of Ephesians. Paul's talking. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his strength, of, uh, in the strength of his might. So again, it's not your strength, it's not your might, it's in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Because how many times do we let the schemes of the devil come in and begin to play tricks in our mind? That the truth of the Lord, the truth of his word, the truth that he has told you begins to get twisted. Remember Adam and Eve? He comes and says, did the Lord really say this? I mean, did he, did he really say that? What do you think? Let me, let me challenge his character. I'm not sure that this is really what he said. And he does the same thing to us. He goes, is he really good? Don't you think he's like holding back from you? Don't you think you need to probably do some things to really make him, make it look like you're, you know, righteous? Like, I've seen what you did yesterday. Stop it. Stop letting the lies of him creep in and tell you how to live. For we do not wrestle, wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Get that belt of truth on. And having put on the breastplate of his righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Put on that readiness that you are ready to go, that you are bringing that gospel of peace with you. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times. I told you I'd get to the prayer part. That's this part right here, the very end. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And that, when we know who we are, and we begin to live righteous, when we begin to live as sons, that he also tells us, put on that armor and pray for one another, that they might also know who I am, that they might also have the eyes of their hearts enlightened to know what is the glorious inheritance that Christ has in his saints, that they would walk free from sin and alive to God and actually live this life out.